As Jason said, uh, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors at Nazong, and I have a wife who isn't able to make it today, but she is seven months pregnant with our second daughter. We currently have a two-year-old daughter, and so please pray for us. Now we're about to go through it, but I have one goal today, and that is simply to encourage your faith, okay? And so let's read this passage, Micah chapter 7, and then we'll ask the Spirit to help us. This is God's word. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest. In the midst of a garden land, let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in the fear of you. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Let's pray together. Father God, We just thank you so much for being our God and our Savior. Lord, we ask today uh, just that you would humble us, God, that you would show us how desperately needy we are for you this morning, God, that you would exalt Christ, the person and work of Jesus would be clearly seen today, that we would fall deeper in love with him, 
that we would be amazed at his grace. And Father, would you lead us into holiness, lead us into Christ-likeness. Lord, help us to live as you call us to live today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start with a question. So if I asked you, what is a child's experience at Disneyland? What would you say? You would say pure happiness, right? Bliss. If I asked you, what is a Blackpink fan's uh, experience at a Blackpink concert? Or a diehard Laker fan's experience at a Game 7 2010 NBA Finals? You would say exhilaration, excitement. Now, what if I asked you, what is a Christian's experience in this world? Romans 8 says, the Christian's experience in this world is groaning. You know when you eat tacos and you don't think about the consequences, so you get the spiciest sauce, and the next morning, you're just doing, oh, that's groaning. Now multiply that by a thousand times, and you get the pain of childbirth. And Romans 8, if we could put up the slide, says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, and not only so, but we ourselves groan inwardly. Our experience in this world is groaning. Psalm 84 says, this world is a valley of baca. In the Hebrew, that means a valley of tears. And the question I want to ask before we get into our passage today is, why does the Bible say our experience as Christians in this world is groaning? What makes this world a valley of tears? And Paul answers that in Romans 18. He gives three reasons why this world is a valley of tears. Though the Christian experience is not absent of faith, hope, and joy, we're in continual groaning. And Paul says there's three reasons. The first reason creation is groaning is because creation is subject to futility or subject to frustration. That means sin has frustrated all of the created order. That means we live lives that are not supposed to, that do not end up the way we plan. Plans, desires, and goals do not go the way we hope. Instead, they end in frustration. A frustrated creation means a world of unfinished stories, unfinished work, unrealized dreams. Apparently, my great-grandpa on my dad's side was an inventor, right? How often do you meet an inventor? But he, my dad said in Korea, uh, his grandpa was always inventing this one thing. And he would sit my dad on his lap and he would say, "Uh, grandson, once I'm finished with this invention, this is going to change people's lives. And we'll be so rich, I'll buy you all the beef you can eat. Koreans apparently only had beef like once a year in their seaweed soup. They were so poor. So my dad said, wow, this is incredible. So my dad watched his grandpa year after year for decades work on this single invention. But before he passed, before he could finish, I mean, he got an illness and passed away and never finished that invention. Decades of work just amounted to nothing. And even hearing that, you're left with this feeling of like vanity, right? Incomplete. C.J. Vaughn comments, the whole book of Ecclesiastes is a commentary upon this single verse in Romans. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. 
A creation subject to futility means a world of unfinished work, unfinished stories, unrealized dreams and goals, and that causes us to groan. The second reason Paul says that this world is a groaning place, a valley of tears, is because it is subject to decay and death. Romans 8.21. One day, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. But Paul is saying, for now, it is in bondage to decay and death. What does that mean? It means we all live in a very weird reality. We look to our right and we see life, we see beauty, we see growth, we see babies being born, and we look to our left and we see death, we see cancer, and we see the worst evil imaginable. A creation subject to decay means death always gets in the way of life. It inevitably interrupts life, and that is not the way it's supposed to be. But we look around and we see what Paul said is true. Creation is in bondage to death. A while ago, my family witnessed this mix of life and death in a pretty traumatic way, at least for the girls in my family. So we used to all live together, like my brother-in-law, my sisters, my parents. And one day we just saw like a bird come into our back backyard every single day. We said, what is it doing? And then we saw a dad bird bringing sticks and we realized, oh, it's making a nest. And so we were watching this. It was awesome. It's just building the nest. The mother would like throw down sticks that the dad bird brought that it didn't like. And it would, the good sticks it would put as a part of the nest. And we saw this mom build the nest and begin to lay the eggs. And if you know anything about my mom, she is so funny because she looks at this and she says, our house is a safe haven for babies. We have baby birds and we have baby humans. All babies are welcome here. She was just doing her devos, watching the mom lay the eggs, and eventually the eggs hatched over a month. A couple weeks pass and these babies are born and mom's feeding them, but then the day comes when my dad looks out and he says, hold on, something is wrong. Like the mom hasn't come back for a long time. And we look out, all of us, and all of a sudden this, this hawk, this big hawk swoops in, grabs the whole nest of baby birds and flies off, dropping one to the ground and it died. And we were stunned, but my mom, she runs out, and she's wailing, and she says, this is because of sin. This is because of sin. I was looking at this thinking, man, this is so dramatic, right? But I thought about it, and I thought, but she's absolutely right. This is because of sin. And I was joking, and we were laughing about the death of these birds, but we all know death is not a laughing matter. If you have ever been in a room with a family who just lost a loved one, or just lost a child, or just lost a father, you know that there's no laughing in that room. There is just a groaning. There is just a crying that seems to say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And we groan because creation is subject. It is in bondage to death. But lastly, the reason Paul says this life is a valley of tears, a life of groaning, is because we are in pain. Verse 22 of Romans. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pain of childbirth until now. See, because of sin, because of the fall, we experience pain. Physical, emotional pain. Broken bodies, broken relationships, broken hearts. That causes us to groan. 
But Paul in Romans 7 actually adds a pain that is unique to the Christian. The Christian uniquely feels the pain of his own sin. The Christian is pained by his own sin. And when we feel pain, spiritual, physical, emotional pain, we groan. And so Paul and the Bible says, this is a fallen world. It is a valley of tears. Now, we, not, we might not be going through specific hardships in our lives right now, right? But it is likely that people around us are. And the Bible says one day, each of us will experience the effects of the fallen world. And so in order to be prepared for that, in order to minister to those around us, one of the most important topics in the Bible in regards to living the Christian life is how does the Bible call Christians to process brokenness in this world? Did you know there's a whole book, the book of Psalms, which depicts every range of human experience and emotion. And out of all the different psalms, there's imprecatory psalms, thanksgiving psalms, psalms of praise. The most common psalm is the lament psalm, the psalm of grief. It makes up nearly half of the Psalter, 65 psalms. And every single one of these lament psalms in the Bible is teaching us how to process brokenness with God. And when we come to our passage today in Micah chapter 7, what we actually have in this passage is Micah the prophet, his lamentation. Commentators have noted this lamentation in Micah takes on the same exact form and structure as lament psalms. Now, brief context. Why is the prophet lamenting? You see, the prophet wrote this passage in a time when Assyria had just overtaken Israel in war. Assyria has just sieged Israel, so there is war, death all around. And Micah writes this in the midst of this war. And on behalf of all of Israel, he grieves to God. And through Micah's lamentation, we learn how we walk with God in a fallen world, how to process brokenness as a Christian. And we see four steps here, and these are going to be the four points of our sermon today. When we encounter the brokenness of a fallen world, number one, Grieve and lament. Number two, look to God. Number three, wait on God. And number four, trust in God's promises. Grieve and lament, look to God, wait on God, trust in his promises. So the question is, what does this passage show us about how to process the brokenness of a fallen world? Uh, Read verse one with me. The first point is to grieve and lament. Woe is me. For I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. This starts with the phrase, woe is me. Right? That means I am ruined. I am undone. Here Micah encounters the effect of this world and he mourns. And he is actually describing the way he feels through imagery. And he gives two images to describe the way he feels. First, he uses the image to describe what he has become like because of this war. He says, I have become like the tree that has been stripped bare. I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. He says, I used to be like this tree that had abundance of fruit. But through this death and war, I have become like a barren, desolate tree. 
And this is a powerful image for when we go through tragedy. To lose something we love or to lose someone we love is the feeling of being this tree that once had ripe fruit but is now barren. We have lost our former fullness and life. Micah looks out at a war-torn Israel, possibly having lost people he loves, and he says, this is what I've become. But secondly, the second image is Micah describing what he is feeling when he says, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. Emotionally, he says, he is like a man who is craving a fruit or a fig. And excitedly, he sees this fig tree in the distance. And so he's approaching this tree with eager excitement to taste the fruit, only to walk up to it to discover the tree is fruitless. And utterly disappointed, he turns away for, with his craving for this fruit unsatisfied. This image is describing the experience of having such high hopes and expectations for this world, only for this world to leave us disappointed. Don't we often begin new ventures, our 20s, where it's all gain, new marriage, new kids, new career, with this skip in our step, with this glean in our eye, all the things my life can be. But in a fallen world, romanticism meets reality. Things do not work out the way we plan. That is why the continual teaching of Scripture is do not place your hope in this world. Be excited for, enjoy the good gifts that God gives, but do not place your hope in your spouse or in your career, or in your competency, or in your success, or your children, because no matter what promises of joy this world holds out, it can't deliver. The Bible says it's cursed. Place your hope in Jesus Christ alone. You know, I thought when I got married, I'd be fulfilled. It just made me more tired. I thought when I like, had kids, I would, you know, be satisfied and content, it made me really tired. And I thought being able in a career, doing something I love would make me fulfilled, but the Bible's words ring true every single time. It ends in disappointment. And as Micah experiences loss and disappointment in a fallen world, he laments. And what Micah is teaching us here, and what the Bible teaches us through all the lament psalms, is that the appropriate response when we encounter brokenness is to grieve. And I think the reason the Bible harps on this over and over is because it is possible for people and even Christians to believe sadness and mourning is unchristian. And therefore, we might feel guilty whenever we're downcast. We might heap guilt on Christians who are mourning. I had a friend in college who told me that she was very hurt by one of her friends because my friend was you know, experiencing something difficult and she said that when her friend, and she was grieving, and she said that when her other friend came up to her, she said, you know, I used to grieve over things like that, but then I met the Lord. Like, you're grieving because you don't know God the way I do. This is an example of how Christians sometimes do not have a category for lament. We can be quick to say, you know, why is she so down all the time? Doesn't she know Jesus isn't she a believer? Like, that's not characteristic. And this way of viewing grief is an oversimplification. It's taken from verses that just say, rejoice always. And we say, see, it is unchristian to be sad. But the Bible says it is not only not wrong to lament. In fact, we must lament. 
We must grieve. Because a lack of lamenting can be a sign of pride. Like the Greek Stoics who have learned to desensitize their heart towards suffering and sin, the suffering of sufferings of others, a lack of lament can come from a self-sufficiency, a self-dependence that says, I am able to get through this myself. And if we're not careful, this can lead us to make the same mistake as Job's friends who crushed Job while he was mourning. And Job said, I've heard many such things, miserable comforters are you all. Believers, our faith is not about these cheap one-liners. When someone's going through something to say, just get over it, Jesus has the victory. We must learn to mourn with those who mourn because this is what our Lord himself exemplifies for us. Look at this passage, John 11. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Here in this situation, Mary and uh, Martha's brother just died. And Jesus comes up to him knowing in just a few moments, I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet, when he approached Lazarus' tomb, and when he saw the sisters weeping, Jesus wept. And it shows us, Jesus shows us that our future hope as Christians does not illegitimize our present suffering. And our future hope as Christians does not replace present compassion on the suffering. Though Jesus knew he was about to undo death, he wept out of compassion Jesus wept at the real brokenness of a sin and death-ruined world. Church, when you are discouraged, when you are mourning, God is in heaven. He's not crossing his arms saying, get over it, you'll be in heaven soon. Jesus' heart is filled with compassion. He hears the groaning of his people, and he promises one day death will be undone. As Hebrews 14 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. This is the first step. When we experience any brokenness, the appropriate response is lament and to give other believers a space to do that. Because lament keeps us humble. Lament keeps us sensitive to our own sin and compassionate towards those who are suffering. We must lament. But in our grieving comes an absolutely crucial point. And this makes all the difference between grieving with hope and utter despair. And this leads to our next point. After a time of grieving and lamentation, we must look to God. Look at verse 8 with me. Verse 8 is the primary verse and turning point of this passage. Okay, It says, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. And this is the pivotal point of the passage because Paul and the scriptures make a clear distinction between worldly grief and Christian grief. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, if we can get this up. 
Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Paul makes a clear distinction here. There is a difference between worldly grief and Christian grief. The sole difference being Christians simply grieve with God. The difference between a hopeless situation and a hope-filled situation is whether or not God is in the picture. You see, the diff- what, when the Bible says, look to God, whenever it says, look to God, what it is saying to you is change your focus. You are looking, right, at yourself. Do you realize looking does not require you to do anything? It doesn't require you to go up or go anywhere. Looking to God means right now your focus is fixed on yourself and your circumstances. Look up and bring God into the equation. Look up and bring God into the picture. There is this movie called Lion King, right? And Mufasa, like, why are all the epic characters lions? Mufasa, Aslan. Actually, they're played by Liam Neeson, both of them, I think. That's why. Anyways, I, that was off topic. Mufasa, this epic lion, he says to his little cub Simba, he says, everything light touches is our kingdom. And Simba says to his dad, what about that shadowy place over there? And Mufasa says, you must never go there, Simba. That is beyond our borders. And of course, Simba deliberately disobeys his dad. So he takes his friend Nala and he goes to that shadowy place and that place is filled with vicious hyenas and soon enough they're cornered. There's these hungry hyenas cornering Simba and remember what Simba does. He turns around and lets out the puniest, wimpiest roar. And the hyenas just die laughing. They're like, this is so hopeless and Nala is probably thinking we're just done for. But then all of a sudden out of nowhere, there's this loud, deep, terrifying roar. And Mufasa comes into the picture. And all of a sudden, everything changes. But it's not like anything in the circumstance changed, right? It's not like Simba was able to do anything all of a sudden. It's not like the hyenas were gone. The only thing that changed is Mufasa entered the picture. You see, faith brings God into the picture, Faith brings God into the equation when he was otherwise not considered. Faith shifts our focus from ourselves and our problems to God. And brothers and sisters, the moment God enters, there is hope. In fact, there is not a single person or circumstance that is hopeless if God is present. What our passage is exhorting for us to do here is in our grief and struggle, eventually we must shift our focus and look to God. Corey Ten Boom words it this way. She says, Look out and be distressed. Look within and be depressed. Look at Christ and be at rest. And God actually, by his grace, gives us means of grace to help us continually look away from ourselves to Christ. Just to name a few. Prayer, community, the word of God, and creation. You might not have expected me to say creation, but the Bible is clear That for the Christian, God's creation is a means of grace to help us redirect our focus to God because creation displays the glory of God. Psalm 19.1, if we have this slide. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 
119, I think. Anyway, psalm, this psalm says creation is constantly speaking, right? It is communicating to us. When we see creation, creation communicates to us divine attributes of God. It says, this is your creator, right? This is who he is. He is glorious. He has created all of this. He's sovereign. And so when you are spiritually downcast and feeling hopeless, church, the first thing you should do is put away the phone, right? Get off social media. Put down the ice cream. Go back, go outside, take a walk, behold the general revelation of God, and come back inside, look at your Bible, and behold the special revelation of Christ. And many times this has an immediate effect of breaking us out of this foul cloud of self-focus, and it helps us into the fresh air of viewing God and his glory. This passage in Micah teaches us that in lament, we must turn our eyes upon Jesus because it does not matter what situation we are in, the moment we look to God, there is hope. In Israel's lament, he says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. This is the second point, look to God. But thirdly, how do we walk with God through brokenness and sorrow? From looking to God, we must wait on God. Look at verse seven. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. This theme of waiting on God is a repetitive theme in the Psalms and in the Bible. Now, it's not a single action like we just talked about, like this pivotal transition of looking in faith. What waiting on God means and what they are exhorting is they're exhorting us to take a posture. It is a posture, waiting is a posture of staying with God and depending on God no matter what. It is a posture of staying with God even when there's no joy, no comfort, no peace, no immediate answer or end in sight to your problem. And we need to be exhorted to take this posture because when we are struggling, our default response is to abandon God and trust in ourselves. It is to take matters in our own hands and actually not trust in God. But instead of doing that, Micah tells us we must wait in patience. The primary reason being there is no other hope but God. Abandoning God is never the solution. Waiting on God is a posture of going to God no matter what because we, we know I have no other hope. I have no other place to go. The illustration I use for this is the difference between dental service here in the United States versus the dental service we witnessed in remote Indonesia. Okay, we, need, we just need to admit, in the U.S., we are spoiled. Okay. There's a dental office. There's everything on every single block. And you, you go to a dentist's office. They're waiting 30 minutes. A patient is waiting 30 minutes. They get impatient. Yelp review, one star. We're just impatient. We just want immediate immediate gratification. And when we went to Indonesia, there was actually a missionary we met who just devoted years of his life to going to remote villages and offering free dental service to relieve people of pain. That's all he did. I was shocked that a guy like this exists, right? And so he said, oftentimes in these villages, there were lines up to six hours long just waiting to be, waiting to sit down. But he said every time the person sat down in the chair, even after waiting six hours, they were so full of gratitude, they couldn't stop thanking the dentist. And the reason is because there's no other dentist. He's the only hope they have. Within hundreds of miles, there's no other dentist. 
a posture of waiting on God in the same way is a posture that says, Lord, it doesn't matter how long I need to wait. I have no other hope to fix my problem of sin and suffering. And this is the posture demonstrated by Peter in John 6. John 6, 65, after many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. Just like Peter, when we struggle, we need to take this posture. Lord, to whom shall we go? Have you ever felt this in your devotionals? You come to the word and prayer, and the only thing you say is, God, I feel so cold. I feel so empty. And yet, I have no other place to go. Sin leaves me guilty. The world leaves me feeling more empty. God, I will stay here because you're my only hope. Brothers and sisters, that posture in itself honors the Lord. That honors the Lord. Go to God even when you don't feel joy. Go to God even when you don't feel this peace and overwhelming satisfaction because he's our only hope. Wait on him. But that leads to our last and final point. After we grieve and lament, after we look to God, after we wait on God, finally, how do we process, how do we walk through the brokenness of this world? Christians, we must trust in the promises of God. Now, this is the final point, but it's so important because we need to clarify that waiting on God is not passive. When we suffer, when we're discouraged, we are not called to be passive and say, you know what, I can't do anything about my sadness and I'm just going to loathe here until God does something. Instead, the Bible instructs an active waiting in which we are actively seeking wisdom and fighting against despair. Because what you guys need to realize is that your despair, your discouragement is not passive. Rather, despair and discouragement is more like an infection that can spread through our whole system and take us over. Therefore, the Bible says we must actually fight discouragement. As John Piper says, we must learn to fight despondency, the downcast spirit. The fight is a fight of faith in future grace. It is fought by preaching truth to ourselves about God and his promised future. And so we see Micah doing exactly that in verses 9 through 15. He is filling his heart with the promises of God's future grace. The promises of God that say there will be a better day coming. Look at verse 9 with me. <coughs> Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light. Verse 11, a day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things." What promises is Micah recalling here? He's recalling the promises God made to Abraham, an extended border, that God will give Israel 
a land and make them a great nation, that God will be the shepherd king of Israel and he will take care of them. And as Micah recalls the promises of God made to Abraham, he grows in confidence that a better day is coming. So confident that he defiantly looks at the enemy Assyria and he says, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. The people of Israel here at the end of the lament are filled with hope. And the question is, how are they so sure in the midst of their lowest devastation that God's promise of a better day would come to pass? How can they be so confident? And the answer is because they knew the character of their God. Verse 18, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. This God does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. The people of Israel, if you just read the Old Testament, were always saying, who is a God like ours. Who is like the Lord our God? And what they are saying is, God, because we know your character, we are confident in your promise. Because we are confident in who you are, a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, therefore we know your promise of our deliverance is a certainty. This is the exact main point of the verse in Hebrews 11.11. Look with me on the screen. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who made the promise. See, what this is saying is that your hope in someone's word of promise is as sure as your understanding of their character. This is the last story I want to share. Okay? My mom is, to me, the best. Like I love my mother. But she did have a bad habit when, she, when we were young, and she's gotten so much better at this. But when we were young, my mom made promises that she couldn't keep. She wouldn't keep promises. And so she would say things like, kids, come here. Like, if you do your Kumon and your homework today, I'm going to take you to Disneyland tomorrow. I promise. And so we would just, like, do all of our Kumon, all of our math workbooks, all our homework, and then eager and excited, we'd wake up, Mom, let's go to Disneyland. And my mom would say, oh, my gosh, I forgot I have to take your grandma to the doctor. And we were just (laughs) devastated. And she would do this several times. And after she did this several times, she would say, kids, if you do your homework today, we're going to go somewhere tomorrow. We wouldn't do our homework because we didn't trust her promise, because we didn't trust her. But my dad, on the other hand, okay, when my dad made promises, he would say things like, you know, kids, I don't make promises often, but when I do, I will keep it unless an earthquake happens and kills me. We're like, oh, man, okay. So when he said, yo, Jeremy, if you do your Kumon and homework, I'll take you to fishing, Disneyland, whatever you want tomorrow, we would lock ourselves in that room. We would say no to hanging out with other friends. We would do our Kumon because we had assurance of the thing we hoped for because we considered him faithful who made the promise. Brothers and sisters, in the same way, as we groan in a fallen world, if you are experiencing suffering or 
the fallenness of this world, we can be confident a better day is coming because our God has promised it. And we consider him faithful who made the promise. He is faithful. He does delight in steadfast love. Our God cannot go back on his own character. Then the question becomes, how do we grow then in an understanding and a knowledge of God? How do we come to know who God is? And the New Testament has made that crystal clear. The way we grow in knowledge of God, God has revealed himself most fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is where you see the character of God most clearly displayed. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to Philip, have I been with you so long, and you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You see, everything Jesus did in his life, he did, a, he did to show us who God is. When Jesus wept over sin and brokenness, he was showing us God's heart towards sin and the suffering it caused. When Jesus drew children to himself, he was showing us God's heart for the helpless and the needy. When Jesus drew the tax collector and said, the adulterer, come near to me, he was showing us God's heart for the lost And when Jesus was nailed to that cross, brothers and sisters, he was showing us God's heart for you and me. As Augustine says, the cross was the pulpit from which Christ preached his love to the world. Because on that cross, Jesus groaned with the deepest groan. On that cross, he absorbed the full effects of a fallen world. And on that cross, he absorbed the full wrath of a holy God for every single one of our sins that we would never have to. And God hung on that cross, and he showed his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My theology professor said, if there were not nails in the hands of Jesus, he would be clinging to that cross, saying, I am willing to die for my people to save them. He was determined in love to save us. Israel always looked forward, one day, one day, God will remove our sin. As Micah 7.19 says, God will, future tense, have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. What privilege do we have as Christians that we can look back on the cross and say, God has tread our iniquities underfoot. God has defeated our sins. God has cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He did that at the cross. Therefore, brothers and sisters, as you walk through this fallen world, God's word for you is look to the person and work of Jesus Christ. See the steadfast love and faithfulness of God displayed there and grow in confidence after this short vapor of a life is over. A much better day is coming for those who believe in Christ. Do you know what 1 Corinthians 2.9 says? It says, as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That is our future because of Christ. So in summary, how do we walk with God in a fallen world? We lament the brokenness of a fallen world, but we look to God, we wait on God, and we trust in his promises. And day by day, though we groan, we are filled with praise, and we join the prophet Micah 
and we say to our Savior, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Let's pray. Father God, um, have mercy on us, Lord. We are weak and weary sinners. God, we are in a fallen world that is subject to frustration. It is in bondage to decay. It is groaning in the pain of childbirth, and we ourselves are groaning, God, but we have such hope in Christ. God, because of what you have done, by your love, just because you loved sinners, Lord, you have come and lived the life we couldn't live. You died the death we deserve, and you rose, symbolizing that we will rise with you to new life. God, our future with Christ is secure. And so I pray that as we lament, as we groan, even in our bodies, day by day, God, my sin, my suffering, and the things that people are going through around me, I pray that we would look to you, Lord. I pray that we would wait on you, that we, would, that we wouldn't go anywhere else but you. And I pray that your, your spirit would fill us with the promises of God of a better day that is coming because of Jesus. We thank you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.